Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. Let's give our attentive hearing uh, to the reading of God's word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here on the first Sunday of this year. Lord, we, we are thankful uh, that we can continue to worship you uh, in your presence, to be called by you as your people and gathered as your church. Lord, uh, may we hear you. Um, may we receive your word as your people. Uh, receive it gladly and humbly. Uh, and also obediently. We also pray for those who are not able to be with us for various reasons, especially those who are sick. Uh, Lord, we pray you you be merciful to them, that you comfort them, that your presence will be felt by them, and that uh, they would hear uh, your word also. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, something I like to do during the holidays is uh, revisit some of the old movies I found um, inspiring and rewatch them. And one of the uh, one of those movies I revisited this past holiday season was Dunkirk. It's a World War II movie about. It's based on a true story about the evacuation of the British soldiers from the the shore of France called Dunkirk. And, and they're all waiting to be rescued on the beach while Nazi soldiers are continuing to attack them and disrupt the evac- evacuation efforts. For the first half uh, of the movie or so, all, when all you see is the action and the, and the battle scenes, the main question that lingers as you watch that is when? Uh, when will they finally get off Dunkirk? Um, when will rescue come? When will this be over? And that's what builds the suspense and the angst, uh, this question of when, how long. And the clock is ticking. And if you, if you uh, listen closely to the opening score, you actually hear the sound of clock ticking in the music uh, as well. So that, all that builds the, builds the suspense. But when you get to the end, you realize that this movie was actually really addressing a different question entirely. In the end, as the soldiers arrive home, and the civilians who um, helped the evacuation, they come home. 
you hear uh, Winston Churchill's speech about the evacuation being read out loud by, by one of the soldiers on the train. And it's this very rousing speech with a very moving you know, soundtrack to go with it. Uh, and Churchill says in that speech, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight with growing confidence. We shall defend our islands, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And then you, you roll the credits. Turns out, this movie was not about answering the question of when, but why, what for. Okay. If, you, if you watch this only asking the when, uh, it can rather frustrate you. And, and, and at, by the end of the movie, you might be like, what was the point of all this? But when you watch it and you start asking the why question, that ending gives you a very satisfying resolution. In, in the same way, one very um, common way that people are unknowingly guided in their reading or misguided in their reading of Revelation is by asking only the question of when, instead of asking the question of why and what for. A lot of people approach the book of Revelation with the when, but not the why. And, you know, that's natural and, and to be expected because um, Jesus' own disciples took the same approach. Uh, Matthew 24 is the classic example of this. Jesus talks about his second coming in Matthew 24, and the first thing his disciples ask is, tell us, teacher, when will these things be? When will these things take place? And what Jesus goes on to tell them is not the when. He says, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. He, he nips that in the bud immediately. What he does address is the why. Why he brought up the subject of his second coming to begin with. And that was to tell his disciples that they are to endure through trial and suffering. To encourage them to remain brave and vigilant about sharing the good news in the midst of persecution. To not become complacent, to not fall in love with the world. So there's actually a lot to reflect on when you ask the why question, not much to go off on if you start only asking the when. So here we are in Revelation 6, and, and if you recall where we left off, John is seeing the vision of the Lamb of God now being enthroned, and, and he's the one worthy to open the scroll that will bring about the final renewal of the whole world and all of God's people. Here we see that the first thing that the, when the seals are broken and the scroll is opened, what, we, what emerges from that is God's judgment. Terrifying judgment. And, and specifically uh, through what's commonly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what the first four seals being broken reveal, the four horsemen, four riders. And most commentators, they, they agree that they thematically agree or they're consistent with one another and they point to one thing mainly and that is the judgment that comes from the Lamb, the judgment of the Lamb. Okay, so now, as we, before we dive into the text, you have to understand there are two paths 
that diverge before us, like that poem. Um, the one more traveled is, is where you approach this text and only ask, when will these things take place? And we can read it like any people have done and, and try to, okay, maybe this will happen very soon. Or maybe this has happened or began, began to happen some time ago. And, and try to take, uh, take this passage and apply it to one local place and one time in history. And, and spoiler alert, right, that, that will, you will never make sense of the text that way. Um, and, and all the predictions in the past about, about the when have been wrong. Um, because this, this is really talking about all something that has been happening all throughout history since Jesus' ascension to heaven. So what I'm going to encourage us to do is take the other path, the less taken path, the road less traveled, um, and that is the path of asking the why and sticking to it, sticking to asking the why and what is this here for? Okay, And, and if we do that, I think that will make all the difference for us. We'll, we'll actually have... Quite, something quite beneficial to gain from this. Even, even from this passage about this, this terrifying judgment of the Lamb. Uh, here's the outline. Okay, first, let's address, let's address some cultural objections about judgments in general. Okay, just to kind of remove that obstacle or distraction a little bit before we dive into the text. And then second, we'll unpack the actual descriptions of the judgment from the text and third, we'll just close with a simple reflection from the judgment that hopefully will answer the why question. Why is this here? Why, why are we starting the new year with a text on judgment? Why? Okay, so objections about judgment, descriptions about the, about the judgment, and, and one reflection taken from the judgment, these three, okay? So first... Some objections, and I'll keep this relatively brief by giving you two two simple points to consider. Um, our culture does have a general problem with God judging sin, doesn't it? Right. Uh, for some people, it's the sole reason why they hate religion or Christianity because it's so judgmental. It, it comes across sometimes as a scare tactic to to control uh, naive and, and easy-to-manipulate minds, to talk about judgment. So for many people, judgment is what immediately turns them off to church. Right? And, and I think we as Christians, when you run, run across that, what Scripture encourages us to do is to be respectful of that and to help them address that, to, to answer that question for them. And so at least generally, let's do that. Um, first, I want to ask this question. Is judgment always a bad thing? Uh, or is judgment always an unwanted, undesirable thing? And if you really think about that, the, the answer should be, it kind of depends. It depends on who you ask. Uh, if you ask a criminal how they feel about righteous judgment, you'll get a pretty reluctant answer. They're not going to be all that enthusiastic about righteous judgment. But if you ask the victim how they feel about righteous judgment, uh, you get a pretty welcoming answer, wouldn't you? It depends on who you ask. In a similar way, right, if someone were to ask how we feel about the judgment of God upon sin, 
we here in Atlanta, Georgia, and in this room, in this very comfortable air-conditioned space, um, our answer will be very different from the answers given by the, the persecuted and imprisoned Christians in North Korea and how they feel about God's righteous judgment upon sinners. Uh, here, we may have more people wondering, how could a loving God be so judgmental towards people? While over there, more people may be wondering, how could a just God be so slow to execute judgment on sinners? Be so slow to anger? Okay. It depends on who you ask, doesn't it? So what does this tell us? It tells us that our feelings, whatever they are, about God's judgment actually says more about you than God. It, it, it reveals your context more than it reveals God's context. It reveals where you're coming from. It reveals to you your view of your, your, your world, your environment, and how urgently you feel, or not urgently you feel, the need for judgment. Uh, whether you are keenly aware of people's afflictions or whether you are distant and sheltered from them. It's, right, this is true. Uh, it's more difficult for a culture that's more privileged than wealthy to come to grips with the need for solemn and righteous judgment upon evil and sin because the whole idea, the whole concept of being more privileged and wealthy is that you're, you're immune, you're more immune to the effects of evil and sin. You're blind to the necessity of judgment upon sin. But that doesn't mean judgment isn't necessary, it just means that you're blind to its necessities. That's the first thing I want you to consider, that, that all of our feelings and opinions about God's judgment says more about us than about God. It says more about where you're coming from. Uh, over here, yeah, you may wonder or run into people wonder more often, how could a loving God send people to hell? But when you speak with Holocaust survivors and, and, and survivors of the Korean War and Japanese colonialism, and, and I've spoken with some of these people, their question is the opposite. How could a just God be so loving and be so forgiving? It depends on your experience, depends on who you ask. Your questions reveal more about yourself and your experience than something objective about God. Okay, that's the first thing to consider. Here's the second thing to consider. What if there was no judgment? Okay, if we, if, we, if we dislike judgment so much, what if we get rid of it entirely? What if there was no final judgment in the afterlife at the end of the world? Then what? Then there is no such thing as ultimate moral accountability, and death simply ends all. And the question you have to ask at that point is, if death ends all, is morality even real? Is justice even a, a real thing? What if the, you know, like the infamous... Um, the, the Zodiac killer from the 60s, um, after killing dozens of victims, never caught, what if he went on to live a comfortable life in a beach house down in Florida, uh, grows old sipping on cocktails, and watches the sunset, the beautiful sunset every day till his dying day? Would that be justice being done? No. But if death ends all and there's no moral accountability after death, what, is that, what does that say about justice? It does not exist. It's not real. 
It doesn't exist, therefore it isn't real. What does it say about good and evil? They're not real either. They're not meaningful. It will prove what Dostoevsky said in, in Brothers Karamazov, that, that terribly long book. If there is no God and no afterlife, then all things are permissible. There is no moral evil or good. In the absence of God's ultimate moral accountability, there is no morality, period. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And we're all entitled to do what is right in our own eyes because there is no moral authority that transcends human authority. Our culture is right when they say, therefore, you do you, you live your truth even your moral truth. But what does that leave you with? That would mean everyone's entitled to be right in their own eyes morally. The allies were entitled to be right in their own eyes just as equally as the Nazis were entitled to be right in their own eyes. The slaves were entitled to be right in their own eyes just as the slave masters were entitled to be right in their own eyes. The perpetrators are entitled to be right in their own eyes and so are the victims entitled to be right. Everything becomes arbitrary. Morality becomes meaningless. It says, Judges 17, 6 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel preferred that. Why? Because then you get to live for yourself. You get to live however you want. You get to be your own master and commander. And they, they were willing to trade that for this moral insanity, moral irrationality, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. The only thing that can put an end to this kind of moral craze and insanity is if there is a moral authority that transcends human authority. The, the one ultimate transcendent authority who is truly entitled and worthy to open up this moral accounting book and litigate truly and justly and righteously over every human being according to that one absolute standard. That's exactly what the judgment of God is. And, and you can say, well, why does it have to be the Christian God? That's a separate question. Even, even asking that question assumes you agree with us that this ultimate transcendent moral authority is needed and we just need to figure out who, who we turn to for that. But it, it agrees with this, this underlying assumption that we, if we don't have a transcendent authority that judges all the world, all the world, every single human being, then morality becomes ultimately arbitrary and meaningless. So um, to close this point, um, oftentimes, the objections raised by our culture reveals more about our culture than about God of the scriptures. And, and that it, 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 it takes a very privileged life, very privileged life, to, to conceive of why, why judgment would ever be, be needed or desirable and find it undesirable. It takes a very privileged life to say, you know, we don't, we don't need judgment on sin. And this also reveals the, the trouble we have, as the Israelites did, with surrendering our right to live the way we want and to be our own masters and commanders. Okay. And I think if you consider this, I think it will, it will help you. It will help you start engaging with passages like today's passage, passages of judgment in the scriptures, without constantly being distracted, okay, with like this noise in your head. How can this be? How can the loving God... Does this answer all the objections and questions about God's judgment? No, but it's a start. 
and I hope it's it's enough for us to now start engaging with this text. If you have more questions, right, we can always get coffee and, and dive into this more. Let's dive into the descriptions of the judgment now, the second point. Okay. Starting with the first seal, verse 1. The first seal is opened by the Lamb, and one of the four living creatures that worship before the throne that says in a thunderous voice, Come, and John looks, and what does he see? A rider who is a warrior who's riding on a white horse carrying a bow and a crown that was given to him. Now, some people have tied this rider in Revelation 6 with the other rider who rides on a white horse as well in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, it says that rider is the Son of God. It's, it's the Word of God. It's Jesus the Christ. So, so would Revelation 6 be also referring to the same person? It, that doesn't seem to be the case because even though the only the similarity here is that they're riding a white horse, that's the only Similarity that they're riding a white horse, but everything else is different. Uh, Christ is carrying a sword. This person, this rider is carrying a bow. Christ is wearing many diadems, a kingly ornament. This rider is wearing a crown, which is something that you you win for for finishing a race or accomplishing an objective or a mission. And this first rider in Revelation six seems to be very closely tied to the other horsemen, the other riders, and equal in status with them. And so it seems to be a stretch to equate this writer in Revelation 6 with the one in Revelation 19. And, and bottom line is Christ is calling forth and sending this writer and, and not, to be, not to be equated with him. Okay, so why was this first writer sent from the Lamb and from the scroll sent out? And it says he went out to come out conquering and to conquer. Conquering and to conquer. And if you combine this with the bow, which is um, a very effective weapon of warfare during this time, this is very clear language referring to warfare. And not just any warfare, but completely dominating victorious warfare because, because it says here that he came out to conquer, not to be conquered again by someone else, but to conquer some more. He came out to conquer and then to conquer. And, and this kind of language of, of victorious and conquering warfare, you see that uh, in other places in the Bible, from the Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, you see these images of God's warfare uh, in, in prophetic writings. And the context is usually God's sovereign, righteous judgment upon sinful and evil empires and nations, which often included Israel as well. And, and along with it, God's restraining of the, the sins and evils of those evil nations, violent nations, uh, war-waging nations, to deter the effects of their unjust wars and, and their evil violence. So God's judgment in, in, in these instances uh, was delivered by means of sending, using warfare. And, and having this dual effect of pronouncing righteous judgment on evil nations and restraining their further unrighteous deeds. So, so God's judgment here, by means of this terrifying bow right, and warfare, is meant to judge the, the other bows and warfares, the violence of men. It's a warfare meant to judge warfares, violence meant to judge violence. Um, it's like whenever, when you watch movies like Return of the King, 
Lord of the Rings, or even, even in a non-fictional context, something like Saving Private Ryan, or even in superhero movies like Batman, when we look at a lot of the violence, we understand contextually, we understand that's peacemaking violence, right? Uh, it's, it's violence to, to stop evil violence. It's, it's, it's just war to end unjust wars. Right? If you watch any of the recent Batman movies, and if you, if you consider who is the most violent person in the movie, it's Batman. <laughs> He's the one landing all the punches. He, he, he is inflicting terrifying violence to end violence. It says in Psalm 46.9, God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. How does he do that? He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He, he inflicts violence on the violent, breaks the bow and shatters the spear. And it doesn't say that God will make war cease to the end. Of the, it says he does this. Not that he will break the bow and shatter but that he does break them. And meaning this has been something God has been actively doing all throughout history. And, and if, you, if you look back on history, hasn't this been the case? Those who rise by violence fall by violence. Those who, those who conquer get conquered. Those who wanted to judge the world according to their standards get judged. No empire was forever no superpower remained super powerful. And, and the, the vision of this first seal reveals to us that's all happening within God's sovereign plan and his providence and due to his judgment as well. And not only that, it seems that upon ascending to the throne, the Lamb has taken over this authority now to pronounce this judgment upon the world. Okay, that's the first seal. And then here's the description of the second seal. The breaking of the second seal. It's very similar to the first. Uh, the second living creature says, come, and out comes the second horseman. This time the horse is bright red. And it says in verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So this seal, like the first contains uh, visions of force and great violence, but it's different from the first in this. Whereas the first writer was himself the one conquering, here, the ones who are really inflicting the violence are the people, not the writer. And yet, interestingly, the description here is also indicating that it's really, this is all actualized through the lamb's control and execution, not the people's, or even the writer's. It says the rider was permitted, permitted by who? The lamb, to take peace from the earth, and that permission leads to men slaying one another. Right. So still, the lamb is in full control over this horseman, the second rider, and he goes out, he removes peace from the earth, and then people slay one another. So think about what's implied by this, 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 this logical chain, if you will. The logic of this seems to imply that until, until now, until the, the second rider was, was sent forth, that peace, if peace did exist on the earth to any degree, it was something that was granted to them 
by permission from the Lamb, from the throne. Something that was permitted to them and not taken away from them. Uh, peacekeeping on earth wasn't something that was accomplished through human efforts and, and collaboration. It was granted, permitted to them intentionally and actively by the throne of God, from the throne of God. And so implicit here is kind of what we just confessed in our catechism about God's providence, that God is sovereign over all human affairs, all of nature, and and if we, if we see anything good on earth, right, like the song says, if we see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and, and you think to yourself, what a wonderful world. That's, that's the providence of God working graciously for us. But now the second writer comes, and his work is to lift, take back this restraining of evil by God's providence, his restraining of violence and conflict on earth. These are now lifted, lifted from the earth. And, and what remains? The people slay one another. That's what, that's what remains now. And, and, and so the second seal does seem very closely tied to the first in that it's about warfare. And, and now furthermore, it's about the absence of peace. And now human nature left to do what it, it does when it's left to itself. They, they, they hurt one another. It's like the children who are... Uh, removed from civilization and dropped off on an island in Lord of the Flies. And when you leave them to their own nature, what do they do? They start slaying one another. When you lift civilization, when you lift the suppression, when you lift parents, lift uh, uh, laws from them and leave them only to their nature, they slay one another. That's what the second seal seems to be uh, doing here. And then the third seal. The third seal is quite different from the first two, but if you think about it, it's actually very closely related. When the third seal is open, the third living creature says, come, and out comes a third horseman riding on a black horse, and a rider had a pair of scales in his hands, and that's a balancing scale for measurement, for measuring grain during this time, and there's a voice that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Okay, what does that mean? Um, just to give you some context, grains were the, the least expensive of the crops during this time in Asia Minor. And a quart of wheat was considered one day supply for one soldier during this time. But what's interesting here is that the writer says a quart of wheat for a denarius, uh, which a denarius, denarius was worth one full day's wages for an, for an agricultural laborer, meaning uh, the price that's quoted here for one day's food was the worker's entire earnings for that day, okay, which is really high. Um, historians note that the usual price of a quart of wheat during this time was actually closer to one-eighth of a denarius. So this is an 800% inflation on the price of grains. Why? Let's ask the why. When does such inflation go up according to you know, Economics 101? when there's a severely reduced supply. When do we see severely reduced supply in grains or harvest? During wartime. Whereas a second writer lifts the common grace of God from human beings and lets fallen human beings do their thing. Here, the third writer seems to lift the common grace of God from nature and allows fallen nature to do its own thing, bringing famine, bringing starvation. 
but what is this deal about not harming the oil and the wine? There are a couple interpretations of this, and for the sake of time, I'll just share with you the one I agree more with. And I find more agreeable is, is the interpretation that this symbolizes those who make a profit even during wartime. And even when there's severe poverty, you always see throughout history, there are always people who get rich off of that. And the Bible does condemn those who don't use that towards generosity, but further exploits the poor and the needy. Okay. But it is true, in general, during wartime, there's severe poverty of the lower class on the one hand and lavish lifestyles of the rich on the other hand. And this is also within God's moral domain. He permits this. He commands and judges all people still according to his law during such times, according to what's given to them. So think uh, Schindler uh, in Schindler's list. Terribly rich man during a terribly impoverished time, and yet he uses that rich for good. Right? He uses his material possessions for good, for saving people. Of course, not everyone does that, but that also is within God's providence, within God's moral domain. So the connections and similarities between the first, second, third writer are pretty clear, all stemming from warfare, and this warfare is judgment stemming from the Lamb. Then there's the final and fourth seal, which most commentators agree is really the summary of the first three, or the climax that the first three have been leaving up to, leading up to. Uh, the fourth rider is released by the fourth living creature saying, come, and this horse is colored very uniquely. It's kind of colorless. Verse 8, it says it is pale. And the Greek word is chloros, which means pale green, a lifeless grayish kind of green. And, and in certain contexts, even in the English language, right, we use green and pale in, in that same sense of people who are terribly sick or people who are even dead. And as you see, the color of the horse matches the characteristic of its rider. The rider is death himself. And Hades, which is the grave, closely following right, right behind it. And, and notice death here. He's not majestic and conquering, you know, wielding a sword. Um, Death itself has authority, but, but only because it's been given to it, and it's under. Death is under authority, right? It's not how, kinda, how our culture would caricature and personify death to be. Death is kind of this uh, in, independent agent floating around and just picking and choosing who to take next, and, and if you were smart enough, you can outsmart him and <laughs> escape. It, you know, it's not like that at all. Um, death here is an agent under authority. Whose? The lambs. Uh, if you recall Revelation 118, Jesus says in that very opening vision, I am the living one, I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Meaning, uh, the Son of Man, Christ now has authority over death because he overcame it, he conquered it, and, and so he can promise to put death to death once and for all, uh, which, which could also be what's implied by the pale horse that death is also dying, and, and that the Son of Man also has a power now to liberate those who have been imprisoned by death. Death, in other words, is under authority. Death is on a leash, and, and on the other end of that leash is, is the Lamb who is in control, the Lamb who is in control, the Lamb who, who uses death uh, to his own purposes, even his own saving Purposes. If you, if you think about the irony of this is that the lamb who has authority over death subjected himself to death at one point, didn't he? 
this is a lamb who was slain by, by, what? by death, but to, to conquer death and to overcome it, to, to, to tell his saving story, salvation story, using, using death. Jesus himself, in a sense, was in a way included in this uh, one-fourth number. Um, it says, death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. And commentators consider that fourth to be a cumulative symbolic number, cumulative of all those who have died all throughout history under the sword and all the effects of warfare, famine, pestilence, wild beasts of the earth, right, without city borders. And the Son of God, the Lamb, was a part of that fourth but he was control, in control of all of it. The lamb, the one who sits on the throne, is in control. He is in control, meaning he will keep his promise to see his people, his church, his bride, through it all. And this is where we come to the conclusion, the, one very simple reflection I want to close with today. And this is where, where we answer the question of why. Why is this vision given to John and to the early church and to us today? Uh, and by God's design, providence, and not my, my scheduling, uh, we're opening the new year with this passage. What for? Why? I think the answer is very simple. So you would put your trust in Jesus Christ. So you would believe in him and him alone for salvation. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, this passage in Revelation 6 means that none of these things, not even the worst of them, takes place outside the absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. Meaning, God's purpose is in it all. His wisdom permeates through it all. And that means for the people of God that it is true when it says in Romans 8, that God is able and he does work all things for the good of those who love him, even things that these four writers are bringing about. Not even they can separate you from the love of your heavenly Father. Even if the earth gives way and the mountains are thrown into the sea, we can rest secure and assured in the absolute sovereign care of our God of the Lamb of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This is what this is here for. This is the why. It's so that you and I can sing no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. You can sing that and mean it. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. This is the why. So you can sing that out of true conviction. And, and if, if recent experiences and news of the world events around us haven't done this already, this passage should also help you strip away from your life any misplaced trust in human power human government, human military forces and scientific advancements, or in yourself. Turn to the Lamb for your hope, for your salvation. 
Dennis Johnson, another theologian, he put it like this, as Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified alarm, as though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order. But anticipation and confidence, the Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in hand. Meaning, when, when things fall apart and, and things will fall apart and and I'm not a big believer in, you know, 2022 will somehow be infinitely better than 2021. When you see the world around you collapsing, rather than being shocked, consider yourself having been informed through Revelation 6. And rather put all of your anticipation and confidence in your true Savior, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God and sing his praises, worship him who sits on the throne. And, and we're going to close later on with, this, with the hymn, Is He Worthy? And, and realize this, when you say he is worthy, to break the seal and open the scroll and unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what you're professing as you sing that is that even, even if the four horsemen were to ride, ride up straight to your doorsteps tonight, if that were to happen tonight, you will still be able to say in your heart, he is worthy of my trust. That's what you're singing when you're saying he is worthy of opening the scroll. That he is worthy of your trust, not because your world won't fall apart, but even when it does, you will overcome through him and in him, and therefore you trust him and you say he is worthy. He is worthy. I hope that we can make this our aim, and I believe that's why God providentially landed this on this Sunday. Make it our aim this year to know Christ, to be worthy of our trust, even as the world around us is falling apart, even as it is collapsing. Your hope need not collapse if your hope is in the Lamb. And Let's make it also our aim to share this, this good news, this secure salvation with our loved ones, with our children. Because our greatest gift to our loved ones is not going to be giving them more illusions of comfort and safety in the here and now. Whether that's through gifts, through, through comforts, through vacations. No, the... The greatest gift we can give to our loved ones is the gift of this good news, the gift of the Lamb. That, that if you have Him, or, or better yet, if He has you, you have it all, and you have nothing to fear, not even death and Hades. Try to give the gift of this gospel uh, to your loved ones this year, and, and begin with your own rest and confidence and enjoyment of the Lamb who is worthy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our, our wise and sovereign God, uh, we, we thank you that you reveal to us uh, even, even what may be difficult for us to understand, but that, but that you are a God of, of justice and righteousness, that you are a God who is holy. You're a God who does, who does pronounce good judgment. Uh, Lord, would you strip away any trust we have put in 
anything earthly, our possessions, our achievements, our job titles, our house and cars, Lord, uh, help us see how futile these things are against your coming judgment and see that our only refuge is found in the Lamb who was slain so that we would not be. The Lamb who overcame so that we would overcome. Lord, help us to transfer all of our trust, all of our faith in him and, and be able to share this good news with those around us and gift this gospel to them with our words, with our deeds, with our lives. Lord, use us uh, to this end and be glorified through our church this year uh, as, we, as we fix our eyes on, on you. And uh, Lord, the world may be falling apart. In many ways it is. Uh, but Lord, we rejoice here as, as often as we worship you and we, we praise and we sing of the Lamb. Uh, may we continue to do that without ceasing, without giving up, um, and, and instead encouraging one another to continue uh, to do this uh, throughout the year of 2022. And we ask that you would grant this all by your grace, your mercy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.